Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. I'm joined once again by my faithful co-host, Dr. Joseph Minnick, and we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Joe Rigney today. Dr. Joe Rigney uh, has authored a number of books, including Live Like a Narnian, Christian Discipleship in Lewis's Chronicles, C.S. Lewis on the Christian Life, The Things of Earth, and his latest book, Strangely Bright, Can You Love God and Enjoy This World? Recently, and this is uh, very good news for the American Evangelical Church, Dr. Rigney will be taking on the role of president at Bethlehem College and Seminary. We anticipate many good things because of his leadership. On a personal note, Dr. Rigney has helped me think through a host of challenging subjects, both in his public writings at Desiring God and his private writings that I've had the honor of participating in via email. He is a treasure to the church, and if you're not intimately acquainted with his material, you should remedy that quickly. He's also a fellow Baptist, which means he understands the Bible properly. So, Dr. Rigney, thank you so much for joining us, brother. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks, guys. I, I didn't. Like I said, I guess I didn't click that you were also a fellow Baptist. That's great. There's two, two on one. Take that, Minnick. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And you no, can tell worry. by the, the aesthetic pleasing uh, uh-huh. aura that we give off. Uh-huh. Uh, we, we shine like Moses. Right. Uh, so today we want to talk about self-deception. Um, uh, deceiving oneself is a universal habit. We all participate in this act in some capacity. And I think as I get older, uh, the depths of my uh, self-deceptive practices um, become more clear to me. And I'm sure that most Christians can relate to this. Uh, This is not a subject that should be thought about in terms of how self-deceived that guy is over there. Uh, Rather, it's a sin that should be first understood internally. Just speaking for myself, I understand that I have the uncanny ability to frame a vision of the self in the most flattering of ways. And this is not something that we do detached from reality. Self-deception in its rawest form takes place when the lie that we tell ourselves about reality best corresponds to it. C.S. Lewis offers a thought on this. Uh, He once wrote something that says, nothing can deceive unless it bears a plausible resemblance to reality. So Joe, you've written a good bit about Lewis's insight on this question, and perhaps we could start out the conversation by asking you to give us a, f- a few bullet points about how Lewis handles this topic in his corpus, and what insights that he offers the church on the nature of self-deception. Yeah, well, this is, I think, one of the reasons that Lewis is so valuable to the church, and I think um, maybe one of the un I don't know, maybe, maybe I just don't read enough uh, on people on Lewis. Um, I read Lewis more than I read people on Lewis, but then I write on Lewis so that, you know, there you go. Um, But uh, it's one of the things that I think maybe is unrecognized about what makes him so brilliant is his capacity to sort of um, use a scalpel to just absolutely nail us, you know, get down to what's actually animating us. Um, And so some of the things that, you know, it shows up a lot in his writings um, great divorce. I think this is a major part of what that book is actually about mm. is, um, is by, by taking these, these characters, right. So journey to, to the green plains, but with the damned, um, and you have these exaggerations of people on earth, right. So just take human beings and just exaggerate them a little more in that sort of self-serving ingrown way. And you'll actually be able to see more clearly, the self-deceptions that we perpetuate on ourselves, like right now. 
Um, and so when we look at these, um, you know, I call them, I think in, in Lewis and the Christian life caricatures, right? Um, the whole point of a caricature is you exaggerate certain features, but there actually are real features of what the person is. And so, um, and so in thinking through that, like there is an element of, um, uh, like see like magnifying glass on these characters to see the ways in which we ourselves, um, manifest these tendencies, have these motivations. And then and the big thing is um, tell ourselves lies about what's really going on. And so I think that's where Lewis is really helpful is he'll, he kind of gives both um, the superficial story, sort of the likely story that we tell ourselves and often tell others. Um, but then he, he shows it in such a way that you can actually intuit the real animating principle underneath the, the, the lying narrative. Um, and so you just take, you know, the, one of the opening characters in that, um, is, uh, this, this poet that sits down with him on the bus. Right. And so the poet's, you know, going to tell him kind of his story and it's a sob story. Um, and he says, he seemed to be a singularly ill-used young man. Right. And he just, as you, as you kind of listen to the guy, tell the story, it's like, my parents never understood me. They never recognized my genius, all the school, the five schools that I went to, and it's, and it's told in the third person. I think this is part of the effect is like he tells the story kind of in this indirect way where you're getting what the poet is saying. But if you're attentive, you're going like, oh, man, this is his version of the story. It'd be really interesting to hear what other people said about him mm -hmm. um, and what the real story is, because as, as it come, kind of comes through, you know, he he's always kind of making excuses, right? So the, you know, the university's never understood me. They never recognized my genius. And then I finally realized that was because, you know, of the capitalist, you know, overlords um, who've inculcated bourgeois values and that sort of thing. And so all this, it's, it's the system that, that has rigged things to where nobody recognizes my genius. Um, and, uh, and then it becomes all about the war and the Soviets and, you know, America and all this kind of stuff. So like, he's, he's got this narrative about himself but like, it's very clear in this exaggerated way that like what really animates him is he just wants people to think he's cool. He, he, he wants recognition. Like that's really what he's after. And if he doesn't get it, he'll make excuses for himself. Um, and then, you know, sort of the, the icing on the cake is when he talks about um, the girlfriend he had who, you know, he thought she was, you know, they were on, on locks in lockstep. And then she turned out to be a mass of, you know, bourgeois prejudices and monogamic instincts. And, and you hear that and you're like, oh, that's like academic speak. What, what was it? She wanted him to like, let's get married. Stop, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. stop, right. stop sleeping with other people and get married. And he's like, oh, you're just a part of the system. And so you can see there where like, there's this sort of ideology, this narrative, self-narrative, like mixed with an ideology that's just masking a, I want recognition and I want to be able to do what I want, like sleep around and not have anybody tell me anything. And if they do call me on it, I've got, I've got categories and, and uh, all of these ideologies. So, so if you, and if you were the, the, the thing about that, that's really interesting, I think is if you were to meet that guy, how would you handle him? Like if you, the real guy before he dies, before he throws himself onto a train because it's life's so bad, how would you talk to him? Would you really be trying to address the ideological stuff he's throwing at you about the, the bourgeoisie and all of the communist rhetoric, or do you have enough, self-awareness and then therefore other awareness to go, this isn't really about ideology. This is about something more human and fundamental. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, that's one way. I mean, we could talk about a lot of, again, all of, I could, all of those characters in great divorce sort of, sort of track with that, that basic um, deal where there's a superficial story that they tell themselves. 
Um, but as they tell it in this exaggerated, you know, after death way, the reader um, is supposed to be able to intuit what the real issue is. And this is what George MacDonald, who becomes Lewis's guide on this journey, says, right? You've been brought here so that you can see the nature of the choice. Like each of these souls is facing a choice. And at, and at bottom, that choice is basically put God at the center or put self at the center. But it has many different faces and many different names. And right. at one point, McDonald talks about how in the language of the damned, you know, what, what, you know, what will it be? He's like, well, they'll call it, you know, um, Achilles rage and Coriolanus's pride and grandeur. And, and like, and it's all of these sort of like, like names that you would give for these really grand things. But at bottom, it's just sin. It's just, I want my way. And, and the, the whole point of the book is I'm going to show you the same fundamental choice in a variety of different guises and forms. And the purpose is not mainly that you'd then be able to go out, like you said, and go like pick on people, although it does enable you to do that. Yeah. Um, but the first thing is, what about you? What, what about you? Yeah. yeah. It's uh, the, the Pauline scholar, uh, uh, Mark Seifert or Seifert. I've never quite figured out how to pronounce that. But, I, think uh, I think it's Seifert. Seifert. Uh, he, um, he has this, he, he summarizes the teaching of Paul on sin very often by saying uh, uh, that, that part of the recognition of sin and the turning to faith is, is agreeing with God's contention against you. Uh -huh. And I find that a very interesting way to put it, that there's something, there's something in repentance and the turning to faith of a kind of honesty at some fundamental level that like, you know what, the charge is, you know, you nailed me to the wall and the charge is true. Uh, yeah. And of course, faith is sort of the motion toward Christ rather than simply agreeing and saying, because the other option, of course, is to say the charge is true, but I also don't care. Uh, <laughs> right. yeah. And you yeah. also, you know, another instance I'm thinking of in Lewis where you see this is um, uh, Orwall in Till yeah. We Have Faces. You know, I think, I think uh, uh, Laza, when he was here a, a month or so ago, uh, was making the point that Orwell really in the first portion of that book is kind of lying to us the whole time. Like mm -hmm. she's very, very self-deceived about what's really animating her. She has this charge against the gods, as it were. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when the gods actually give her the true script to read, like, hey, here's, here's what's yeah. actually in there. She reads it and it's very short. Like it's gone from several hundred pages of here's my system to uh, this short, like actually, you know, you're just mad. <laughs> I, just, I just hate the gods. You know, it's I, really I it's very it. simple. And she just reads it and realizes this is true about me. It's just true. It's naming well, reality. Well, and that's, you know, one of the things about, you know, Till We Have Faces, that's exactly what it is. And, um, you know, so we're here, here's all of the spoiler alert sort of stuff. The, the whole point of that book, the opening lines are, um, you know, say, um, uh, oh, the, the, she's talking about the, uh, the gods and she says they have no, there's no one who they can, I've got no husband, friend, child um, who, through whom they can hurt me. Right. And, and those, those three, that those are the three natural loves in four loves. Right. So romantic, it's romantic love. It's, it's a, a, affection and friendship. And so the opening line telegraphs, like the gods can't hurt. And then they push you up the gods, right? I have nothing to fear from the anger of the gods because they can't hurt me anymore because I've got no friends. I've got no family or children and I've got no husband. And, and so it's telegraphing like the, and what Lewis says in letters about that book is it's a picture of what natural affection does without divine love governing it. And so oral mm -hmm. is sort of like, and so, and you track, you know, she has three main relationships in that book. Um, you know, the, her relationship with the fox, with the fox is a friendship. Yeah. Um, and they, mm -hmm. it mainly operates at that level. 
um, her relationship with Barty as sort of this unrequited eros, romantic love. Yep. Mm. And of course, the fundamental relationship with Psyche, um, which, which even though they're half sisters, is maternal on Orwell's side. Right. And so in, in each case, like you see the, the so, when you, so when I've taught this, when I teach this at Bethlehem College and Seminary, um, what we do that we did this year was we read the first um, telling of the story, right? Part one. And then we pushed pause and went and read Four Loves. And I didn't tell them where we were going. I just said, we're going to take a break and go read this. So we did two weeks on Four Loves and then came back and read the second, right? Mm-hmm. Part two, um, as a way of saying like, now, do you see, do you see what, you know, that Orwell is Miss Fidget from Four Loves and Orwell is, you know, um, preying on friendship. She's, she's, got, she's got this monomaniacal maternal vampire thing going on. Um, because, and, and the really scary thing actually about that book at some level on the self-deception question is in part two, when she picks up and says, um, you know, I know so much more about the woman who, I wish I could rewrite this. I wish I could start over, but I don't have time. I'm dying. Um, and uh, I wish I could, you know, rewrite it all because I know so much more about the woman who wrote it. And so you go, oh, so now she's seen the light. And so she's going to write sort of the true story. The problem is then when she talks about it, she says, um, the writing itself, writing down her complaint against the gods was the God's surgery because she's speaking before judges. And so she's trying to be honest. So there's actually three versions of this story um, in the, in the narrative, there's the virgin version that she'd been living all of those years. And then what we get is actually the cleaned up honest version in part one. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like, in other words, yeah. like, the, she, she, she says, the story I'd been telling myself was not the story that I now remembered when I tried. And so like her attempt in sort of a natural way to be imaginatively honest with herself as she's sort of separating motive from motive pretext and trying to figure out what was really animating me in that moment. And, and like being uh, honestly, you know, if this is what the gods are mad at me about, that's fine. And so she's doing this, like she's trying to be honest. Like the whole point is part one is her attempt at an honest account of her life. And then when she actually sort of has the God that the apocalyptic boom and the, the God sort of rip the veil off and say, actually, this is who you are. She looks back and goes, my honest version, even compared to the lived version was mm. like, like I, I tried, I tried my best to be honest mm. and it didn't work. Yeah. Right. You know, it's interesting that when I, um, <clears throat> cause on this program, we've been really talking about Lewis a lot. And I think it's because Joe and I are at this, at this, when we've talked about this before on the program too, we're at this weird spot in life. We're both, uh, Joe's how 58, 59, Joe. Something like that. Yeah. I right. Think, so yeah, we're... <laughs> I'm 38. I always have to remember. Yeah. 38. Yeah. I'm 36. And we both came back to Lewis sort of like in the, in our thirties and uh, reading him again with new eyes almost. Yep. And uh, one of the things when I read Screwtape, Screwtape as a, my, it was one of my favorite books as a child. My mother read it to me over and over and over again. I took my mom to see the play when that came out yep. uh, for her birthday, but I didn't know anything about what Screwtape was about. I, I don't think until I got older uh, and, and I started to age in my Christianity. And one thing that I've um, been thinking about is just how could a man understand evil so well the crafty nature Mm -hmm. uh the wiliness of 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 evil Mm -hmm. and i i think i'm starting to understand well because lewis understood himself so well 
that's that that gave him the ability to articulate what it actually means to be evil because he understood the self-deceptive nature of his own sort of justification of sin um and i feel that too so when i get into these patterns of like deep contemplation about the weak areas of my life what do i you know when i say to myself dale where do you need to grow up son where, where, what are you doing in life why are you screwing up in this way what's back of all that it's this like reductio, like, and at every level that you peel back a different layer and you sort of like throw the justification into the trash pile, and then you're exposed to this whole new way of understanding what your motivations, you come to actual, actually see yourself um, and your ability to harness your good gifts that God has given you towards wicked ends for selfish purposes. Right. And that's one of the reasons I think that uh, Lewis resonates so well with me is because his entire project was turning away from the self. Yeah. He was concerned about showing people how deep their selfish motivations uh, are implanted in them and the way that that manifests. And I wonder how do we and when I have people over my house from church or whatever, if it's friends and we're hanging out around a campfire, strumming a guitar, having a grand old time, and the conversation turns serious and we start to discuss, uh, you know, areas of life that we're really trying to flesh out a little bit more. I really do try to like cut through the bull, like, mm -hmm. Hey guys, let's have real conversation. Now mm -hmm. this is, this is big boy time. And that's where I think actually manhood is, is rooted the, Courage is actually the ability to go, man, I really suck in this area. Why? Um, and just like confronting yourself. So, mm -hmm. but what I don't find is that that is a common sort of like uh, practice, at least in social settings. Because the minute you go there and there's even memes about this, right? Like uh, what's the meme about the, 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 um, the, Aquaman actor and he's sneaking up on Chris Pratt at some like Hollywood yep. shoot. And it's like me at Thanksgiving getting ready to talk about philosophy with my family or something. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yep. Right. Right. And I wonder if there's like uh, something about the modern age that's preventing us from doing that deep reflective sort of analysis of uh, the underlying motivations of our heart. Are we distracted? Is it too easy to dismiss that? Are we not, you know, lying on a hill, looking at the stars, tending to sheep, contemplating God or whatever? Uh, but I, I, I wonder, why do you think, do you think that this is, it's more difficult in the modern age to do that self-examination and be honest with ourselves? Or do you think that this is just always the way that it's been and, and we're actually in a better spot than we've ever been or something like that? Yeah, I, I suspect, um, you know, part of it is we have such little knowledge of like what a normal person 500 years ago, what, what, what their sort of social life was, whereas we have no all kinds of ways that the modern social life, normal social life, I suspect it's a universal human thing and not right. necessarily uh, particularly modern. I think the form of it, and, and the sort of pathologies that uh, attend it are particularly modern and driven heavily by social media and technology. Um, and I think probably by an absence of um, just grace, like, um, you know, we'll, we can maybe talk about this, you know, as we, I assume at some point where we go, so what do we do now? If, we, if we're always lying to ourselves, how do we not? Yeah. Um, but part of that answer is gonna be, um, you can't, it's really difficult to be honest about yourself and to yourself 
um, if you're not confident in grace. Like if, if God's not for you, then being honest is like the last thing you ever want to do. But if God is for you, then you can actually be honest because, yeah. and I think this is where Lewis is actually helpful. Um, and this is why he's attractive to readers is you, um, you don't get the sense from him. He's about to, to un, you know, you're, he's about to strip you naked here. He's right. about to peel back the layers and show you who you are, but you don't ever get the sense that he's about, he's going to exploit that. He's right. not out. He's not out to get you. He, he really does care about your good. Yeah. I think this he's is part of showing. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, no, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, he's, he seems like there's a, yeah, it, it's, it's rhetorically brilliant in some way, but he, he always seems to shine the warmth of God on it. Yeah. So it's the exposing light of God, uh, but there's also a divine warmness in it. Like, Hey, I'm only doing this for you. I'm doing it for you. <laughs> yes. Right? yes. Just, and with the offer of forgiveness and like, Hey, let's just get with the program here. You know, yep. <laughs> you know, it's not it, a. Right. Yeah. And that, and I think that's his own personal experience. So like in uh, you know, one of the things um, how, how, you know, screw tape, he says at the beginning of screw tape in the preface, I think, you know, people ask, how were you able to do this? And he's like, I just know myself. I, I had, right. I had a really good, if I wanted to see what, you know, demonic tendencies look like, I just like went down and like sniffed there for a while. And, and this is what I came up with. Um, which is why he said I couldn't do an angelic version because I can't imagine right. I don't have a good enough imagination or style to communicate the best version. That's that's still off in the distance. I've not been there yet. But in uh, in Great Divorce, there's this uh, section where I think it comes after um, the artist. So the artist is the you know these two artists are meeting and talking, and one of them they were both one saved, one's not, and and the one that's not is. Um, has mistaken the means for the end. Like he, he thinks the whole art sort of art for art's sake, as opposed to, you know, art for God's sake. Right. And, uh, and as they're talking about this, um, George McDonald then says, you know, I knew a guy, um, I think called Sir Archibald, who was obsessed with the question of whether we survive after death. So he just, do we survive? And so spent his whole life studying it and, and devoted, you know, just monomaniac focus on this one question of survival and then dies you know, he, there he is in yeah, the right. afterlife and he's still running around trying to prove to people that the afterlife is a thing. Hmm. And, and, uh, and in this, it's a brilliant moment in the story because hmm. um, he came up and he comes up to the green plains and he keeps trying to tell everybody the, is the afterlife is real. Um, and, and he couldn't admit that he'd mistaken the means for the end that he proving the afterlife as opposed to enjoying the afterlife and enjoying God <laughs> in it. Like he mistaken that. And so in the end, he, he cared nothing about joy and he went away. And what's interesting is then the um, Lewis, the, the character in the story goes, how fantastic. And McDonald like looks at him with a piercing glance and says, uh, you think that you think so? There have been men before now, I've got, I've got it in front of me here, before now who got so interested in proving the existence of God that they came to care nothing for God himself, as if the good Lord had nothing to do but exist. There have been some who were so occupied in spreading Christianity that they never gave a thought to Christ. And he says, this is the subtlest of all snares. And then the, the thing I love about it is that the, the next line is moved by a desire to change the subject. I asked why the solid people did not go down into hell to rescue them, you know? And it's sort of like that, that little like moved by a desire to change the subject. Like this is Lewis's temptation here as an apologist. Uh, he actually has a poem called the apologist evening prayer, which is basically like, Lord, deliver me from success because he would always say, um, mm. no doctrine is more dead to me than a doctrine that I just successfully defended. Right. Ugh. Like, 
like that was like that was the sort of like like i i could he'd put his all out there he'd successfully show the the reasonableness of miracles or the supernatural whatever and then he'd go and he'd go home and he had enough imaginative honesty to go like the accolades the pats on the back because i'm a brilliant you know oxford theologian or you know professor um but do i care more about that than like the resurrection itself than yeah when i was a I started studying theology when I was 14 and like, like any, if, you know, if you're that young studying theology, it's probably not uh, the wisest form of it. Uh, but I, I got into the Calvinist Arminian controversy for, yeah. I don't know, six years or, or so. And, you know, read everything I could find and, you know, read all these, you know, all the contra books and could refute them or whatever. Uh, but uh, I, I remember thinking to myself for several years, like, would you be happy if there were no Arminians to go out there and fight? Yeah. Like if heaven, if, yeah. if heaven had no more, no more little, you know, sort of LARPy online battles for you to go perform, you know, yeah. would it be heaven to you? And it became clear to me over time, like, yeah, this is, this is not entirely about the glory of God as much as you can kind of script it that way for yourself, yeah. but let's be a little, and maybe that's a good segue into, into kind of asking like, you know, how does this, you know, how do you think this shows up, you know, in our, in our culture, you know, there's, there's kind of, there's probably characteristic kind of left-leaning versions of self-deception and, and probably more relevant to us because we know we're very aware of those. Yep. <laughs> uh, you know, there's some characteristic kind of conservative directions of self-deception. I wonder if you have some thoughts about like, where do you think they, uh, sort of the low-hanging fruit tendencies we can, we can point to and say like, yeah, we see it here and here. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and it is true that we are much, we, you know, we can always see the other guys, um, tendencies more clearly i think than our own so i want to preface it that way and then still talk about the other guy's tendencies yeah of course. sure sure sure, sure. <laughs> so, uh, but but um I, i've got a, i've got a term i've been playing with i'm not i'm not quite happy with it yet um but you know i've done this work on on uh, empathy over the last you know 18 months or so um and just the dangers of it it's it's a very lewis-like project in uh, in fact coming out of great divorce and four loves um, where here's a good thing, um, namely the capacity to sort of share emotions with other people as a way of building trust and connection that very easily becomes a not good thing. And in fact, a very evil and wicked thing um, when it sort of sets up on its own. Um, and so, you know, I wrote an article on dangerous compassion um, yeah. where basically like Lewis says, the love of family can become a God and then therefore become de demoniac. So can love of you know, a romantic partner or whatever, love of a friend, um, the love of the weak and the hurting, that's compassion, can become demoniac when it sets up on itself. And so I've got this, I'm toying with this idea about kind of um, empathetic bulverism. Hmm. Um, and and what I, what, I, the bulverism piece, bulverism, of course, is this idea that Lewis has that like, um, when you try to disprove someone's argument, not by actually showing its irrationality or, or, you know, that it contradicts the truth, but simply by accounting for its origin in, in their life. Like you, you would just believe that because you're a man. You just believe mm -hmm. that because you're a woman. You just believe that because you're white. You just believe that because you're black. And, and so like you're, you're giving the, the reason why they believe it. Um, and then they're and counting that once you've explained its origin, then you can dismiss it as though it was false. Hmm. Um, and there's Christian versions of this, like actually think like the Bible does a little bit of this. So it's not like necessarily a bad thing when Paul says, you know, that we've exchanged, you know, we want, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Um, and so why doesn't this guy want to believe in Christianity? Um, cause he wants to sleep with his girlfriend. And it's like, that's true. 
Like that can be very true in this particular case that he's, he's resisting the gospel because he doesn't want to stop sleeping with his girlfriend, but it doesn't tell you anything about whether or not Christianity is true or not. Hmm. Right. Right. Like Christianity is true or false on entirely other grounds. Like, did it actually happen? Did Jesus rise from the dead? And whether or not he doesn't want to believe it because of his girlfriend is irrelevant to the truthfulness. Sure. And we can, we can confuse those. And so, um, but so bulverism is just like, I just see it everywhere. This is like the, the, you know, Lewis just pegged this one, right. But the way empathy kind of comes into that, I think is these different, um, the, um, the whole victimhood idea. And it's more complicated, I think, than we often recognize. So like there's these four parties. So I'm, this is me observing social media largely, yeah. right? But that's what it is. Like you've got, you've got victims, um, you've got advocates, you've got oppressors, and then you've got an audience. And, and the audience is actually really important here. Um, but like, and, and they're fluid, but like people, um, so like the, the advocates, they're the ones who are just, you know, this is the social justice warrior who's all about this, whatever particular victim class they're concerned about. And they're going to go to the mat and use the victim to get their way and manipulate and validate themselves. And I'm a good person because I'm on the side of, you know, truth and light and these people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, but who are they doing that for? Well, partly for themselves and partly for the audience, right? And then yes. partly against the oppressors. Um, who are the problem and, and the victim. And then the victims can become advocates and the advocates can sometimes become victims. And so you can move around. But the point is, is like the, the simplified narrative there of there's white hats and black hats. I'm wearing the white hat, um, protecting the weak and the hurting. Um, and therefore, if you're the wrong gender, wrong color, wrong sexual orientation, whatever, I can just dismiss you. You're not allowed to speak because you're by, by de facto an oppressor. The way that that's relevant here is people can do all sorts of really wicked and ungodly things and yet think of themselves as sort of advocates for the weak. Yes. Right. So at the very moment that they're telling themselves, I am a soldier for the good. I am on the side of the sons of light. I am doing God's work is precisely the moment at which they're doing the most, you know, horrific slanders, um, dismissals, you know, Mm -hmm. they don't care about the truth. They don't, you know, like, and so there, and, I, and you, I think you see that, especially on the left, um, that's sort of like the, the left's version of this, where the, the self story is, I'm the, the noble fighter for the weak, I'm the advocate, and yet at that moment, they're actually, they don't care about the truth, they don't love yeah. God. I want to say Wilford McClay has this article very similar to what you're saying called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. Yeah, it was a great article. Uh, 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 and he's kind of asking, like, how, what you just said, though, the, uh, your four categories are very helpful. That's a very helpful way to put it. But he's sort of asking, like, um, um, how does this system, if I could put it that way, he's not using your four categories overtly, but it's if I could yep. translate across, it would be sort of like, how does this system among these four categories actually function for people? Like, what's mm-hmm. it actually doing? And he sort of shows how uh, guilt uh, he, he has a complex argument, but he, he's basically arguing that there's a lot of sort of projection and scapegoating mm-hmm. going on that has a lot to do with like the, the, the moral economy and, and with winners and losers as exist in, in every moral economy that it actually establishes. Yeah. Um, uh, and there's a, you know, plenty of analyses uh, uh, along those lines. Um, one, one, uh, let me ask you this, like just one, I, I don't want to call this pushback, but I'll ask for clarification. Yeah. Because another, and maybe this is just kind of getting to the right side of it, is sort of like the other side of this is that um, 
sometimes when people sort of resist Christianity and they want to sleep with their girlfriend, um, that's invoked very automatically as why they're resisting Christianity. In other words, the Christian on the other side can't imagine that maybe they have sincere intellectual questions. And there's also a sort of safe haven had in being able to throw that Scooby-Doo meme out there that like, ah, you're not re you don't really object to the Christian faith. You just right. want to, and that can be true. Like, and I want to yep. very, be very clear. Yep. It is very, in fact, probably most of the time, that's just what's going on. But I think there are times when that's not all that's going on. It can be, and it can be another kind of, and this yep. is where self-deception is a many, a many headed beast. Yep. It can also be our own self-deception when we feel the need to kind of reflexively go there and not confront the fact that, oh, the fact that they're questioning makes me feel a little unstable. <laughs> right. You know? yeah. 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 I think that that's right. So Romans, you know, we can retreat to Romans one because it comforts us, which it should like that. There is an element of like, you know, the truth is plain. Men are without excuse, like all of that's true, and we need to hold that. But there's ways in which that can very easily become a dismissive way of avoiding hard questions that we might not want to admit are are actually hard. Yeah, right. Um, I think the other way that the the, the right, you know, so if I'm going to stick with kind of the social justice advocate type person as the as the left, um, there's a certain kind of per, person on the right who like who can like <laughs> this is me, right? Like right. sees what's <laughs> happening. And like, there's the sort of like, oh, I'm one of those who get it. Yeah. Right. I can see what's really going on here, which is sort of, you know, white guilt, male guilt, white knighting, whatever the terms you're going to use. Um, you can sort of put slap, start slapping labels on all of these really complicated social dynamics. And there's a kind of um, uh, pat yourself on the back because you've analyzed the moment rightly it's like a right wing wokeism almost yeah (laughs) like i'm the woke one (laughs) yeah yeah exactly like i'm the enlightened one i act i really am the one who see this is where and this is where again lewis you know just when you when you start to see how all of his his things come together like the inner ring um being one of the ones who know and that could be i'm enlightened in the woke sense or i'm enlightened in the anti-woke sense yeah um and both of them and 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 here's the thing i think that we have to be clear about in both of those cases, it doesn't mean either of them are actually wrong about the facts of the matter. Sure. Right. Right. The issue, because the issue we're talking about is the self-deception about the ways and because it's always the good thing that becomes the, the demon. Um, you know, it's not, it's not the, it's not the base motive. It's the best motive. So it's, it's empathies are really, you know, compassion's a good thing. Therefore it can become really, really nasty. Um, and you can actually be very unempathetic. It's amazing to me. It's, it's shocking to me to watch people who think of themselves as very empathetic, but it's a very selective, selectively empathetic. Like yes. this group of people, I will crawl over broken glass and, and feel what they feel, but like, you know, put a mega hat on that guy and all of a sudden empathy is just gone, right? Yeah. They shot it and it's dead. Um, right. And then, and then similarly, you can have the same sort of thing on the other side where, um, you know, the, the, mega guys were very empathetic that way and then vice versa and so which is why that's just not the way to think about this like that's that's just, yeah. we're using the wrong we're using good things in the wrong way yeah just yeah. like a, empathy can be instrumentalized you know sort of like and that's a kind of characteristic left sin and that and and, and what you just pointed out is precisely what shows that once you see empathy taking on this profoundly selective quality right. where it's like yeah we know they're smashing windows but let's understand where they're coming from hey, fair enough. Yep. But it's like, that guy's wearing a MAGA hat. Let's understand where he's coming from. And it's like, oh, you know, that not going to happen. But, but similarly, right. the truth, um, 
and I think this is maybe a more characteristically right sin, the truth can be instrumentalized or, yeah. or, uh, or being passionate about the truth can be instrumentalized in such yeah. a way that, and, and, I, and I think we really do need to ask ourselves this as, as conservatives, um, you know, to what extent does sort of having an opinion about everything and having a sort of, you know, sort of flawless systematic system with all its parts and, and being super dogmatic about each of those points. And I'm, don't get me wrong, I am all for theology and distinctions and love my Herman Bovink and, you know, yep. all of that sort of thing. Um, and yet I wonder, is it possible that sometimes interest in all of those things masquerades? Not, and not entirely, none of this is entire in the human soul. It's a war. Yep. You know, people are sincere. We're all sincerely interested in the truth, mostly. But nevertheless, we can, we can, and I think Satan would very much delight <laughs> uh, to have us uh, see, find a kind of safety in, in sort of knowing things, a kind yeah. of rest in having all of my I's dotted and my T's crossed, and my identity in that in such a way that. Well, as you just said, it really doesn't even become about the thing itself. It yep. winds up really just becoming about me. Yep. Um, and, and you see that, I think. I think you see that when you see a certain kind of, uh, interestingly, a kind of deep fragility when, when it's kind of poked at. You yep. know, when people come with sincere questions, you start to see the sweating and it's like, oh, this is my, you know, oh, you're, you're, you're poking my, 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 you know, the balloon that I, that I blew up, you know, or whatever mm -hmm. it is. That's a terrible metaphor, but, uh, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, uh, you're threatening the thing that, that makes me feel comfortable with life and in which my identity is. And it's like, you know, a confident person who loves the truth and doesn't think that they're, you know, know all things can hear somebody criticize and be like, oh, okay, let's just deal with it. You know, it's right. fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and then um, if we want to get, you know, we can, we can add one more category here. So if there, there are, I think, characteristic, and part of the point is there's no safe place. Yes. Like, yeah. like I think that that's one of the things, I think this is where Lewis yep. is, is at his most profound, is yep. it's not like if we could just get the right and then fill in the blank, ideology, perspective, whatever, then we don't have to worry about the whole self-deception thing anymore. Right. Um, that's now a thing of the past. It's like, are you human? Are you, are you, you know, are you still, a, are you still a pilgrim on the way? Um, it's a simple flow chart. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Then, then you still self-deception is a real thing. And so I think um, one of the ways I see it too, uh, you know, this is online is in kind of the moderation piece, right? Like, yes. So like, like, I think there's ways that a lot of cer certain kinds of evangelicals um, always want to be, every, well, this is everybody, everybody wants to be the middle, right? So everybody wants to be able to talk about the error to this side and the error to that side. Sure. And, and so we always construct the thing so that like you can fall off on this ditch, like those people, and then this ditch, like those people, but we're in the middle sort of defying all odds. And it's like, maybe like, and some issues, you know, in our culture probably do work something like that. The answer is in the middle, so to speak. But sometimes it's just like, no, like this side's just right. Like on a whole host of things, like, and your attempt to sort of split the difference is actually something else is going on there. It's a facile, superficial way of posturing yep. um, as the reasonable one in contrast to the extremists on both sides. Um, yeah. and, and, and again, it's taking a really good Augustinian, Lewisian type of insight, which is that like, um, you know, all earthly goods need to be governed by, you know, God. Um, we need to have rightly ordered loves. And so you can say, well, this one's rightly disordered. This one's disordered that way and disordered and I've got it rightly ordered. Yeah. Um, and it's like, yeah, even your attempt to moderately and, and rightly order things can become a pretense 
and you can yes. be, and, and, and um, I just speak for myself again, um, reasonable, my desire to be reasonable um, is a mask for cowardice yep. uh, and fear of being unable to persuade someone. So when I, when I think about me and, and sort of like, there's times where it's like, I don't want to say this because I don't want to get into the shooting match here because it just looks exhausting. Um, and it's like, sometimes it's, I just don't want the drama um, or this is going to make people mad. And I don't really want to make people mad. I want, and so I want to be able to say it in precisely the right persuasive, compelling way so that reasonable people of all sides will go, Hmm. And, and, and so, and if I can, if I'm not confident that I can do that, I'll just keep my mouth shut because I don't want to take a risk. And this is Lewis, right? He's just like, he's very risk averse and he knows it. And he knows that that desire right. to avoid certain kinds of risk, um, or even, you know, to your point about the accumulation of knowledge as sort of like a hedge against risk of being wrong um, can become that. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to risk. I don't want to risk. And it's like, I think Jesus kind of wants to kill that part of me. Yeah. I think, you know, like that's like when I've got the, I've got my little red lizard on my shoulder yeah. and it's like, you know, the angel's just going, yeah, but can I kill it? Right, right, right. And yeah. it's like, oh no. Right. Yeah. You know, one thing is, it's interesting. You talk about um, most people want to sort of, envision themselves as in the middle being the moderate you know on both sides the left and the right if you have the kind of personality that wants to frame themselves that way to present themselves to signal that that's what they are anyway uh, then i think what you'll see most of the time is they punch against the the thing that they're most aligned with so on the left uh you see people that are sort of center Toward, you know, center, left of center, right of center, that's that middle, you'll see them punch against the, the, the liberals. And then the people that are like right of center, they'll punch against the right. Right. And I think that what they're trying to do there is, or at least this is what I've tried to do. I'll just speak for myself. What I try to do there is to say, my inclination is to fall off on this side of the ditch. My, my natural gravity, the mm. gravity pulling me towards one extreme is on the right. Yep. So, so I know myself and I'm already sort of like a, a personality primed for radicalism. Yep. So I have to like wield back my passions yep. all the time. Um, and the way that I've found, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, Tom Holland has really helped in his project when he's like, listen, guys, in the West, Christianity is the fundamental thing undergirding each side of the political discourse. Yep. On the left, on the left, they're really acting out of a hangover of Christian impulses towards compassion and kindness, yep. and you know, like this. Yep. And, and the right is doing the same thing. And um, so, if we're talking about self-deception, I think that one of the ways you can battle that on a personal level is to say, yes, first I need to take a look at my tribe. The, the, the people that I'm most comfortable with and that I'm going to be uh, that I'm going to feel less nervous around when we have disagreements and I need to like examine what's going on there. Yep. However, the problem then uh, moves into another level of self-deception wherein you can find your new identity as the crusader for all things in the middle against mm -hmm. my people or yep. against my tribe or whatever. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, and that is really, I think, what we're trying to figure out right now in America. Anyway, we're trying to figure out how can I not just assume that the pink haired lady with a my body, my cho choice shirt on is like literally Satan incarnate 
And she stands for everything that I need to destroy if we're going to uphold the basic uh, tenets of Western civilization. Like, and that is my arch nemesis. And I think the only way that you can do that is by not assuming the worst about everybody all the time. Right. And I think that that's what we're actually seeing now is, is the, the polarization is getting bigger because I think less people are interested in being moderates. I think more people are interested in being radicals. I even see it on social media, like a call towards being a radical. That's what, right. that's what courage is actually. Yeah. It's like, well, actually courage is just like looking at yourself and going, dude, you're being a, absolute jerk and you have no charity whatsoever against your political opponents it's and interesting what... oh i'm sorry no go, go no ahead. that's okay that's go ahead Joe. Oh, I was just, it's interesting to me that satan is you know the accuser um and you know i've been reflecting a, a bit in the last couple of weeks on john 8 and, and you know obviously just such a powerful narrative christ and the woman caught in adultery of course but it's interesting the, the kind of the rhetorical ordering of Christ's response to her. He has every reason to sort of, as the Pharisees thought they did, every reason to sort of respond to this woman in a particular way, caught in the very act of adultery, probably not wearing too many clothes at that particular moment, mm -hmm. rather exposed. But it's interesting to, he says to her, you know, he says, you know, he who's, you know, without sin, throw the stone, they all leave. And then he says to her, is there anybody here accusing you? And here's the one who has the, every right to accuse her, you know, the woman at the abortion clinic with the shirt on that you were saying, right. Dale, here's right. the one who has every, every, the only one who can rightfully accuse her. And he said, or, you know, and neither do I condemn you. Like mm -hmm. he has, he, he could, he could wield that, but he actually says, neither do I condemn you. Nevertheless, he goes on and says, now go and sin no more. more. Right. You know, but the, but the ordering of those is very interesting. It's, you know, it really starts with, Hey, I'm not, I'm not here to condemn you. That doesn't yeah. mean condemnation will never come but that's, that's not what I'm doing right now. Now go and sin no more. And I think that, you know, we don't, it's, it's in, in a way it's like right and left in our discourse sort of own pieces of that rhetoric. You know, one side doesn't condemn anything. One side's, you know, has all the rights and the wrongs figured yeah. out, but Christ fuses them and orders them in the right way. And I think that's, no, I think that's crucial. Joe, if I could, yep. I want to exploit uh, the fact that you're here and <laughs> ask you a question about empathy. Okay. Uh, because it's re it's related to the topic we're talking about, and we'll link uh, Dale and I will link your your uh, your uh, I think Series. original uh, Desiring God article yeah. on empathy in the in the podcast here because I think it's important for everybody to read. Yes, um, because there's uh, you're right. I mean this this term is sort of thrown around. It's thrown around selectively, but I wonder if um I, I want to describe the way I think of empathy, and then I just want your feedback. Uh, and it might help our listeners yep. then think about like, how is empathy, you know, useful or not useful? And how do we deceive ourselves in that? Yep. So the, the way that I think of empathy, whether I'm looking at, you know, I have a friend who is so far right, he's really into Julius Evola. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I have a friend who's so far left that he's a, you know, a, a self-avowed Marxist. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I think of empathy in most of my friendships or in my context, the way I think of it is almost... Uh, uh, it's almost like an exercise of, of kind of psychological imagination. In yep. other words, what I'm doing is not just like, how do they feel and feeling their feelings and going, okay, I feel their feelings and I'm done. It's more like, 
trying to get inside of their world, understand what that world is like, or just imagine what might it be like if I had this set of experiences, even the sin tendencies, like what would a sinner like me with my sin tendencies, you shove me in that context. Why would I wear that MAGA hat? Why would I throw that stone at that window? And you're not saying there's no sin there, but what you're doing is saying, okay, it's nevertheless helpful to kind of see them as just a human being living in a particular world, acting the way a human being wouldn't shockingly act in that context. And then it, from, a, from a, a, a friend and pastoral perspective, uh, you then are calibrating your wooing of the, of the good toward them. In other words, okay, I see that they're there. And so when I go and present the good to them, I wanna, I wanna deal with a, a person. Really, I just wanna deal with a whole person. And so I'm trying to speak to their world from, from whatever I perceive to be the truth and then summon them toward the truth from where they are. Do, do you think that's yeah. a, a yeah, fair so way of seeing how empathy can be used well? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I think, yeah, that, what I hear in there is a couple of different layers. So one, you're largely talking, I think about um, a kind of intellectual empathy, meaning um, what it, you know, why would they hold these ideas and why would they approach the world in this way? And I would a little bit distinguish that sort of um, between a more, more of a true emotion sharing. There may be some of that there, but like the way you're approaching it is very intellectualized, right? Like you're trying to under, understand, we would use the word understanding. Um, I think there's another kind of empathy that's kind of this involuntary emotion sharing where just the presence of a hurting person overwhelms my capacity to think straight because all I can think about is this person is hurting, we must do something. And yeah. so, and I'm, and, and I think that there, that's where a lot of the danger comes because that impulse is a really good one. And if you've ever been in a crisis, you want some people like that around because they're going to go into action while I'm still thinking about what or where are we? Um, Cause I, I tend to have a little bit more of an attachment that allows me to kind of think more right. abstractly about it. Whereas like my wife, for example, is very empathetic. And you know, if, if there's a need in the moment, she's just intuitively going to get there. Yeah. And that's a great gift. So, so one thing was maybe some distinctions between different kinds of empathy. And then the other is, I think you described it somewhat in a particular way. And so a, a big part of what I'm, when I'm you know, talking about the sin of empathy is a kind of ab- empathy abstracted. It's empathy at, targeted at different classes of people um, mm-hmm. as opposed to individuals. So when you say, I've got this friend and I've got this friend and I'm trying to understand what the world looks like through their lenses and how their experiences shape them and all that kind of stuff so that I can then say true things in a wise way to them. Um, I think that's well and good because you're, you've not abandoned truth. You've not abandoned the good. You, you're still clinging to it. And you're just trying to figure out how do I, how do I do what Jesus did to that woman and sort of get power or maybe the woman at the well is another good example yeah. where Jesus sort of like goes the long way instead of just coming in and being like, Hey, you're a whore. You need to repent. Right. Like <laughs> Jesus comes, right. the, Jesus right. comes the long way around and, and, and is willing to entertain her, you know, theological questions, which are the self-deceived, like, I'm really just interested in where the, you know, Samaritans are going right. to worship someday. And right. he's like, you're actually just trying to avoid talking about yourself. Um, yeah. And Jesus is going to wisely navigate that. Um, and so at the particular level, that's all well and good. What I get, the thing that I see, and this is where this, again, the social media is like a um, amplification machine on this stuff. Um, it's, it's all class directed. It's, are, do you have certain traits? If you have certain traits, then you're worthy of empathy. And I'll try to understand and bend over backwards to give you whatever you want. And if you don't, 
if you have the opposite traits or if, you, if you're, you're the oppressor class in this case, then I've got no, no empathy for you whatsoever. You just need to be condemned. You need to sit down and shut up. Right. And so there's no question of like adjudicating truth claims at that point or of trying to bring to right. bear the good. Um, right. I, love, I love what our friend Alistair has said about this is that, you know, one of the dangers of empathy is it, is it um, front loads the feelings of others as opposed to the good of others. Hmm. And, and that's right. a really good way, I think, of like thinking about what the difference is, is to what degree is it their feelings that are governing things? If they feel loved, if they feel heard, if they right. feel cared right. for, they, and, and it's like, I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but I'm going to say there are circumstances where that's not the main thing. There's the things that might feel good to them that aren't good no. for them. And yeah. even if you go through that psychological exercise of even the emotion sharing as a decision almost. So like part of, I think maybe a yes. virtue of empathy is actually where empathy you're in control, not, not entirely, but there's some degree of the will in relation to it. Like, yeah. Hey, I'm even going to try and get into why they feel mad. Let me try and understand why they feel mad. And yep. it could be because I'm a sinner and I need correction that, you know, we've done this with our wives. My wife feels mad. I'm not sure why doesn't seem reasonable to me. And then you step inside her headspace and realize, Oh, wow. I'm kind of a jerk if I'm looking yeah. at the world through her eyes. Yep. <laughs> and actually that empathetic kind of like getting inside of her emotions and her mental frame can actually help you realize like, um, uh, even, can even in fact illuminate truths in a certain yeah. sort of way, help your mind see certain truths, but it doesn't function by itself. The, 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 and this is where Lewis, I think on the relationship between reason and the emotions is so important. Yes. If, yes. if you're not, it, it's not intrinsically a truth claim to identify with a feeling. It helps me understand something. It helps me understand a value interpretation of sorts. Yep. But the the governing order of the mind never ha less has to come yeah. back and say, but is this just like, I've had invalid feelings before. Human right. beings have those things. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you and, know? And, I, and I think that's one of the, you know, when you look at great divorce or when you look at Till We Have Faces, you know, what, what Lewis is attempting to do, I think in, you know, a couple of those is evoke something like empathy in us. So when you think about the woman in the great divorce, who's um, her son, Michael died, she's a mother and her son, Michael died. And she sort of like lived for his memory, kept the bedroom the same kind of, you know, um, and then she gets to heaven and all she wants to do is see, go see Michael. And they're like, you actually have to love God first. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and she's like, no. Um, but if you actually were a step and, and Lewis, I think after watching the scene, ha, there's a little conversation with McDonald where he says, so you want me to go to a, a bereaved mother and tell her that? Yeah. And he's like, no, no, you're not a good enough man for that. Mm. <laughs> um, he said, he said, he said, maybe somebody is, but he said, I, you need to say in general, what no one's been willing to say for these many years. Um, so you need to sort of portray the general truth, which is that it's, it's possible. And so like at, at one level, you could understand, like, here's a grieving mother who lost her son. Like, that's really sad. Like if you think about it and if you try yeah. to really, oh man, um, but you could see how she's going to wield that as a weapon. All right. And this is the whole, this is when he talks about what I, empathy in the great divorce, Lewis calls the passion of pity, which gets to your other point about the difference between it's sort of a willed action, a deliberate, like, I'm going to do this with one, I'm going to cling into the truth, but I'm stepping in here to try to understand so that I can live well here versus yeah. I'm just going to dive into their swirl of confusion emotions and validate everything that they say and feel. Right. Yeah. Otherwise I don't love them. And, and so that this is the manipulative way um, that Lewis says the passion of pity um, is a, a weapon that bad men use against good men. It's, it's what, it's what gets men who should speak truth. 
like it, but they, they flatter instead. Why? Because of the passion of pity. It's why women end up in the backseat of cars, giving up their virginity um, when they ought not. Right. Yeah, like right. there's ways in which like those emotions are being manipulated. Pity is being used illegitimately. And yes. I'm just trying to say like in the modern world, especially, yeah. especially in a, in a culture, Western culture, in which the dominant institutions of society are all held by the left. And to, to your point, whatever thinker you mentioned about how the left, Tom Holland about, yeah. you know, the, the virtues of compassion that he, that, that are sort of like, you know, Chesterton's line, like the virtues have gone mad. They've been detached from one another. And it's like compassion without any tethering to truth or the good is just running amok. And it's like our, our society is run by people who are enthralled to that. And so yeah. I'm just wanting to be the guy saying like, yeah, empathy is okay, I guess. But you realize yeah. that it's going to wreck everything if you let yeah. it. Yeah. And I think, to. and I think an important part of the puzzle, at least for those uh, like people in our circles, people on the right, conservatives, uh, theologically, politically, um, is that, and I really had to wrestle against this, is that emotions, of course, I had to, I had to come to this theologically because I studied a lot of Gordon Clark who thinks emotions are like, uh, you know, it, because of the fall, therefore we have emotions. <laughs> right. And, you know, I, I remember reading going, oh my goodness. Uh, but, <laughs> but emotions are a signal. Uh, yes. and, and as long as we appropriately understand the function of emotion to, pr to bring into our, our consciousness, um, a signal about something out there that I should be alerted to and then properly yep. order it and move out with an intention of the will towards accomplishing the good that it's signaling to me, then I'm, then I'm utilizing my emotions. Well, I'm ordering my emotions properly. Well, and that gets to the, your, your point about a minute ago uh, about how you determine. So like you mentioned like, you know, what's I, I'm punching, right. Cause that's more my leaning. Um, and I think this is actually another place where social media is, is not helpful because everybody's having this mass conversation in different contexts where the yeah. felt dangers in any different place. Like I live in Minneapolis. Um, so we're, we're an urban church. And so like the kinds of tendencies that I know, like what, what's the danger here? It's probably not the same as a rural place, a rural Minnesota. Like it's the, the temptations and what courage is going to look like. Right. Um, and so one of the, one of the tests I've developed in terms of like self-deception um, for myself. And it has to do with um, attentiveness to emotions when, when um, so pick any truth, truth claim. And are you reluctant to say it? Hmm. So like, like the, the signal is just like a reluctance. And if you can just train yourself to kind of go, I don't really want to say this here. And then there's other times where it's like, I would very well easily say that here. Like, and it depends on who I'm with. So this group of people, if I say X, it's going to ruffle feathers. They might not like me. It might blow up other people. If I say X, they're going to be like, yes. And amen. And I don't feel any reluctance. And when I feel that reluctance, that's a signal for me to say, why, why, where's mm -hmm. the reluctance coming from? Because, because that's often like that reluctance is probably telling me where my slippery slope is right now. Mm, like right. that, that's the, that's, that's the slippery slope. That's actually dangerous. And it's super easy to feel like, Oh, that's the slippery slope. And I'm going to blast it when it's not mine. It's, yeah, e it's, yeah. it's easy to blast the other guy's slippery slope. Right. That's yeah. a great, that's a great way to maybe move, move us toward uh, wrapping it up here. And yeah. uh, I'll throw it to you two first and then uh, I'll, I'll take us out. Uh, uh, by which I mean, end the program. I have no intention of assassinating. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, what are, you know, we're sitting here talking about self-deception de and we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about, you know, what you just started, uh, Joe, which is 
what do we do about it? I mean, like we're, it's a, it's a, there's no safety from it on the right or the left or in the moderate man position or anything like that. There's no safety for it. If you have a human heart still on this side of glory, uh, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna exist in your life, but how do we, you know, what are some ways that we can think through what it, what it actually looks like to fight it? So maybe I'll throw that to you two and then I'll end with a closing thought and then we'll, we'll finish. Deal? You got yeah. So I found that, um, what I've done is when, when my church, um, <clears throat> in my relationships, I sort of have like the, a concentric circle that moves outwards and I have different layers, uh, different levels of relationships that I have. And that's just by necessity, number one, mm -hmm. uh, because I can't talk about all the things I need to talk about with absolutely everyone, mm -hmm. because then everybody would be like, this dude's weird. Like, let's mm -hmm. just not hang out with him at all. Um, so I think what I've tried to do is surround myself with wise counselors that I can be 100, at least they attempt to be 100% vulnerable in front of, mm -hmm. to sort of lay myself wide open and open myself up to criticism. And that's difficult because as you were talking about, Joe, you could attract the kind of person that's just going to feel you. Right. Right. And there's no honest like criticism of your sins yep. in a helpful way. So I think that that's hard because you just don't have like the raw material in some context. You just actually don't have the personnel that are equipped to do that for you. Yep. But, but I've, I've made a real strong attempt at my life by surrounding myself with men that are strong, that are intelligent, that mm -hmm. love Jesus, that I can open myself up fully to, and then expect to receive God's grace through their counsel. Yeah. Um, and then move out. Cause I also do need uh, that sort of layer of relationship yep. where it's like we eat food and we drink and we're married together and we can touch on some of these things, but not really get into the meat of it. And I need that for um, like encouragement and also to be an encouragement to them. So I think that uh, friendship yeah. is vitally important towards mm. helping remove the plank in your own eye. Yeah. I think, I think that uh, when you have a, a, a host of wise counselors that you all are sort of like, you've given up on the pride thing. You're not trying to slam your chest and say, I'm, I'm the alpha in the pack, uh, yeah. but defer to one another at wherein your strengths are seen clearly. Um, that has been big for me. Yeah. But then also the discipline, the basic spiritual disciplines of the Christian faith, uh, reading my Bible with a real open heart, not just as a practice or an exercise of religious duty, but like really expecting God to in, renew my mind through the washing of the word, through prayer, through receiving the word and the sacraments. Mm -hmm. And as I grow as a Christian, I'm finding that those things are um, obviously you know, that's the way God designed them. They function to sort of help me crystallize where exactly in my life I'm sinning. Yeah. Um, so those are just some practical yeah. ways that I've tried to deal with this. Yeah. Good. Picking up on a couple of those. Um, I think the community piece is, is big and, and I think um, developing a category in for um, someone who has the same position that you do, but different instincts than you do. So, distinguish between position and instinct. And, and so 
um, ideally on an elder. So, so I, I have got, so I have all kinds of instincts about you say an event happens, my first, who, who am I suspicious of? Who do I trust? What's my initial read? What's my gut level take right off the bat. And I want to have people who on, if you were to put us, put it on paper, would we all sign the same paper, right? So not just, I mean, it could be affirmation of faith, a doctrinal statement, or it could be even more broader than that on, in terms of, um, Hey, how are we going to approach this thorny problem? Everybody agrees on the principles, um, but not everybody agrees on instinct. And the reason that matters is if you think about it, um, like you can't hold the whole horizon in front of you. Yeah. Right. Right. And so if, if you develop a community, so I'm going to, I'm a pastor, we got a pastoral team and it's sort of like, I know there are guys whose instincts are all to be concerned about dangers coming from that direction. Then I'm free to kind of just keep my eyes kind of roaming the horizon over here with them behind me doing the same thing that way. And that means that anytime something happens, their reaction and my reaction are not going to be the same. Hmm. And, and I have to view that as a good, not a problem. Hmm. Yeah. Like I have to view that as like, we're going to make a better decision because the first person, the first thing they thought of is different than my first thing. And I think that a lot of times, especially in a social media age, we want to cluster up around people who thinks the danger is only from one direction. And yeah. we just, and we aim at each other instead of saying, it's really valuable to have people who go, wait a minute. No. And, and so that's one on the community. And then I think moving into the, the personal, um, I think that just the prayer, you know, when you say, there's nowhere to hide. Self-deception is a thing. And you're not going to be able to find any safe ground, earthly speaking. Um, the Psalm 139 prayer, right? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Yes. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And then um, the way that that doesn't become morbid. In, so it's different than self-examination, as valuable as I think that can be. It's God examination. And so it requires mm -hmm. a great act of faith to say, God, mm. I'm not going to go scrupulously looking for stuff. Lewis says, you'll just create scruples and that's bad. So mm. I'm not going to be like scrounging around, always trying to find where's my self-deception, where's my self-deception, where's my self-deception. Yeah. That's a trap of the devil. And you should just laugh at him and go get a sandwich. Instead, <laughs> instead, instead you say, Lord, I want to be honest with you and with myself. So I'm coming, this is prayer, this is the word. I'm laying myself open and saying, just show me, give yeah. me enough self-knowledge the daily dose that I need for today, let me have that. And then you walk away believing that if, if God is gonna, he's gonna, and he's fully capable of um, ha letting you have that apocalyptic moment where you realize that the story you were telling yourself isn't the real story or the whole story. Mm. Yeah. Amen, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yes. I, uh, uh, I think that point you made about God examination versus self-examination is so crucial. I, for myself, I think I've struggled so much with a, in my own life with a kind of moral OCD where I, I tend to be that deeply introspective, like, where's the self-deception? Where's I don't, and, and it's control. Cause it's like, I, I don't want to be the guy who's self-deceiving himself. I want to be different than the rest of the self-deceivers. And God does not reward that because that, that, that's a form of unbelief. That OCD mm -hmm. is a form of unbelief. And it's, in a, in a way, it's a it's it's me trying to save myself, masquerading. It's a, it's its own form of self deception because it's it's yep. masquerading as trying to, to get God to save me, but it's really me saving myself. Whereas the prayer is saying, 
hey, the heart is way too deceptive a labyrinth for me to figure out, but Lord, you can figure it out and mm-hmm. you you show me, whether it be through Joe Rigney calling me up and saying, hey, Joe, you're kind of a jerk, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or whatever it is. He's never done that. Uh, <laughs> not yet. I've, I've thought about it a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, you know, and there's that verse in Philippians 3 that, I, you know, really has helped me, uh, you know, where Paul promises, uh, you know, make it your ambition to lead the, you know, you know, the verse, but Paul has this little clause that goes something like, uh, and if anybody falls short of this, the Lord will reveal that to you. And so the assumption is, hey, God's on your side. He's not trying to hide your problems. And probably you don't want him to show you all of your problems (laughs) quite yet. You know, he he has a wise ordered way of doing this with you. But the other thing I'd go back to, um, maybe the uh, sort of a last thought we've talked some about emotions and honesty here. I think, I think honesty, there's something about repentance, true repentance, again, agreeing with God's contention against me. That is just fundamentally a a moment of honesty. We've stopped lying. God's correct. We're pinned Mm -hmm. to the wall by, by, by God's righteousness in a particular sort of way. And I think what I, what I see a lot of, in my own heart, and I and I think is is a human tendency is that we we sort of shove down either doubts that we're having or feelings that we're having, and it's not that doubts or feelings are our authority; those are not the authority for what you should think and what you should believe. Nevertheless, they're important signals to you that you need to be dealing with. And I think where I see a lot of self-deception, or I suspect a lot of self-deception, enters both for me and for others, is where you you're shoving down those signals that God has created in you in the mm-hmm. apparatus of the human creature. Um, and then sort of, sort of what you wind up doing is LARPing. You, you create this kind of identity structure on top of that, never dealing with those things, maybe even just, you know, emotions, you know, something like that. It, it, whereas honestly, it, and again, it's not about digging up emotions, so, you know, oh, I don't feel sad. Let me go stir up sad feelings, or I'm not doubting. Let me go stir up some doubt. You just do have the emotions and you just do doubt if you doubt. And part of what you do, I think, is is healthy to do is to let those things happen. Let the signals come to the surface and then sit in those signals, those emotional or doubt intellectual signals, sit in those before God honestly. And so Jordan Peterson, of all people, you know, not a Christian, but he has this great line, right? You know, one of the very, very, very basic things is absolutely never lie. Just don't lie. Uh, Don't, and if it's true that you're doubting, if it's just true that you're feeling a certain thing, it's just true. Don't lie to your, I think another simpler form he puts that in is sort of like, don't ever tell yourself something that you know to be false. You know, and maybe we do that with our lives. Don't live as though you don't feel these things. Don't live and project as though you don't have these doubts that you have. Because that's just your, and the problem is, is if you do that through extensive long-term habituation, the, 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 the line between self-deception and your own psyche is so Mm -hmm. fragmented at some point, you can hardly remember what, who, you know, kind of who you really are. Um, and maybe one way of uh, uh, recommending here, Joe, I think you just uh, endorsed a book that's very helpful on this by Matthew Lapine, The Logic of the Body, yeah. uh, uh, which uh, apparently is very good on these issues, sort of how very to think good. through the, the body embodiment and emotion. And, and hopefully we'll have him on here at some point. But any, any last thoughts from you guys before we take it out? Uh, that, that's helpful. I, I do think that there is a, uh, 
uh, a deep need for like, maybe, maybe, maybe one thing would be, you, you mentioned, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy. And I think that's when you start talking about self when I, so when I teach college students, this is what we do at Bethlehem College Seminary, a large part of my English literature stuff is like showing them all the ways that these brilliant authors are setting them up in order to expose all of their junk. So whether it's Lewis, Lewis is actually like the, you know, in a train of like Jane Austen, like this is what she's yeah. doing in those novels. This is what Milton is doing in Paradise Lost. This is what Shakespeare does so brilliantly. So by the end, like the students are like really met, I think mess them up. Like what I think is true, the appearances are not true. And I think part of it is like, you have to, you have to reckon with like, if you, if it ends up that you have that moment, that apocalyptic moment where the story you were telling yourself isn't true, that's okay. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's like you, you, it's, it's okay. Like that's God wants that. Like for you to be yeah. Lizzie Bennett and saying till this moment, I never knew myself. It's like, praise God. Like, yeah. so don't, don't spend your life trying to avoid the apocalypse. Yeah. Instead, yeah. instead constantly be laying yourself open and saying, Lord, if you want to do the apocalypse thing, I'm ready. I'm not yeah. ready, but I'm not ready, but right. I, but I know it's good for me. Yes. And so, um, and so that, that sort of kills the fear that breeds the lies. Yeah. Um, for mm. us. Amen. All right. Well, fellas, you can find us once again on Facebook uh, 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 and various other media platforms. We'll have this. Uh, well, we also have this. If you're hearing on SoundCloud, you can find us on YouTube. If you're finding us on YouTube, you can find us on SoundCloud. Uh, transitive property of equality. Or so I didn't. That didn't. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't get a degree in math. But uh, thank, thanks for joining us, Dale. I love you, brother. Love you too, uh, brother. Thank you so much, Joe. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Joe, for joining us. And we'll see you all again next time.